Greetings, my friends. Welcome to this edition of the History of Christianity. We're on part 28 today. We'll be looking at Eastern Christianity and the events taking place there during the early part of the Middle Ages. This is going to be a long one, so we'll break this up into two parts, part one today, and then we'll look at part two next week. First, let's look at the differences that are taking place in these areas, the East versus the West. Although Christians at the time saw the church as one, it's obvious that by the early Middle Ages, the two branches of the church were drifting apart and eventually they would separate. So those events that are going to lead to the separation are already taking place. There was obvious cultural differences between the East and the West. Well, what were those? One was the political course of events that were taking place in each area produced entirely different situations. We know from our study of the West that the demise of the empire created a vacuum that the church filled. So church leaders in the West had a lot of power. They had religious power, obviously, but then they picked up a lot of political power. Well, that's not going on in the East. The empire continued in the East for another thousand years. And so the emperors kept a tight rein on ecclesiastical leaders. And that was kind of the pattern that had taken place before the fall of the Western part of the Roman Empire. The emperors had a lot of say from Constantine on through in what was going on in the events of the church. They exercised a lot of control over the leadership. They had a lot of say on who was put in those leadership roles. And then when there was any kind of debate about practice in the church or theological debates, the emperors got involved. So that wasn't going on in the West anymore because those emperors weren't there, but it was certainly going on in the East. This led to civil intervention in theological debates and other church affairs in the East. Many emperors made theological decisions on the basis of political considerations. Big shocker. People in politics are not judging things based on what's best for the people or best for the church or even what's correct. They're making a lot of decisions based on political considerations. Who they support is going to have a lot to do with who supports them and what they think they can get out of it. So it's a big reason why the state does not need to be involved in the affairs of the church and vice versa as well, as we've seen in the West where the church had too much power over the state. And therefore, theological controversy becomes a hallmark of Eastern Christianity during the early Middle Ages. So a lot of what we're going to be looking at when it comes to seeing what the position of the church is in the East are these theological controversies. And the very first one and the biggest one was the Christological debates. By the early Middle Ages, most Christians were in basic agreement on Trinitarian doctrines. We know from our study so far that the Council of Nicaea answered the question about Trinitarian doctrine, although there was an Arian position that continued to exist even past that council. It had been eliminated by the time of the fall of the western part of the Roman Empire, but it came back in the early part of the Middle Ages just briefly because there were invaders that came from parts of Western Europe that had been, there had been missionaries sent to them by Arian leadership. And so they came in with the Arian position being the position they had been taught, but even that early on in the in the early part of the Middle Ages was corrected and almost universally the Christian church was in basic agreement on Trinitarian doctrine. But there were other questions that would cause theological disagreement and the foremost one was how the divinity and humanity are joined together in Jesus Christ. So how exactly can Jesus be human and divine? How does all that work? That became a big point of contention. Put another way, how can the immutable eternal God 
be joined to a mutable historical man. Questions that the Bible really doesn't answer, not at least not in a direct way, people still have questions about. And especially these things that are supernatural in origin, mysterious in a lot of ways, not really being given straight answers as much as we would like to have those answers. And it's natural that people would have questions about these things. They wanted to know. And so the different ideas came into play because there's not a definitive answer. And there certainly was disagreement about it. And obviously people wanted to try to debate and make their side be the one that was accepted. So that's going to be a big debate for many years in the early part of the Middle Ages in the East. And this is the fundamental Christological question. So when we come to these questions about Christ, his origins, the things that people want to know, the biggest one is about the humanity and the divinity of Jesus and how exactly that works in being in one person. In the East, there were two currents of thought. One was the Alexandrian position. And we know from history that the Alexandrians stressed the significance of Jesus as the teacher of divine truth. And historically, leaders, church leaders that came from that area, such as Origen, were very much convinced by classical Greek philosophy. And they were very concerned about the divine truth, the divine part of Jesus. That's the point that they wanted to strongly pursue. And so they thought in order to be this, the teacher of divine truth, the Savior had to be a full and clear revelation of the divine. So their emphasis was very much on the divinity of Jesus Christ. And so much so that they thought his divinity must be asserted even at the expense of his humanity if necessary. So we're going to see in this a pattern that you may have already noticed, but you'll definitely get even more as we go through looking at these theological discussions and the different positions people take. People tend to gravitate towards the one they like the best and they form schools that are opposite extremes. And that's been the way it's been almost since the very beginning. When you do that, you almost have to lessen another biblical teaching, and that's problematic. It's one of the reasons we've had these disputes for many, many years and can't come to agreement. People, in order to make their position be the one that is held most strongly, they de-emphasize another position, or they reinterpret it, or they find a way to explain it away. And this is going on here as well. The divinity must be asserted, and if it means that you lessen the humanity, then that's, that doesn't matter because the most important thing is that his divinity be emphasized, and that's the position that was taken here. But there was another position as well, and this would be the Antiochene position. The Antiochenes felt that for Jesus to be savior of human beings, he had to be fully human. So they're obviously going to take the other side. One in Alexandria, they are emphasizing the divinity. Well, in Antioch, they want to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. If he's going to save human beings, then he's got to be human. The Godhead dwelt in him, but that could not be understood in such a way that his humanity was diminished or eclipsed. So again, they want to emphasize the humanity so much that even if you have to de-emphasize the divine in some way, in order to assert his humanity, then you do that. You do what it takes to make sure that never is eclipsed by anything else. The humanity has to be foremost. 
So both sides had a lot that they agreed about. They agreed that Jesus was both divine and human. There wasn't a take on this that said, well, he wasn't divine at all or he wasn't human at all. That Those things didn't exist anymore. Those were heresies from the past. But there was an emphasis put over how to understand that union. And that disagreement would be the cause of all the problems that took place in this Christological controversy. Well, what about the West? Was the West involved in this issue at all? Well, they were, but they had a different take on it. In the West, these questions did not create the same controversy. You didn't see these questions being wrestled with and people taking opposite extreme sides. And one reason for this is after the barbarian invasions, there were more urgent matters that required attention. They had a lot to deal with. They were just trying to get through life and help people survive. So having the ability to just be able to kind of take time on having a big theological controversy, they just really didn't even have that. So it wasn't going to materialize anyway. But not only that, the West simply revived Tertullian's formula that in Christ there were two natures unified in one person. They felt like this had already been answered. Tertullian answered this question, and they there wasn't any need to keep on arguing about it or even have anything more to say about it. Tertullian said everything that needed to be said, so there just wasn't the need for the controversy there. And in this way, the West was able to play a balancing role between the two sides in the East. So the West came into play for sure, but they didn't take a side. They were the middle ground. They were the one that probably was the best one, the one that says there's truth in both sides. You can't take one out to prop up another one because they're both biblical concepts. So the West played that part in this, in this controversy, and it really helped them out because they kind of gained some enhanced prestige because of the role that they played in being that balancing middle ground that helped to unite two sides and bring an end to the controversy ultimately, as we'll see. So we have to look at some of the figures that were prominent in this controversy and what they thought. Apollinaris of Laodicea is the first one, and the first stages of this controversy began even before the Trinitarian issue was settled. So when there were still problems between the Orthodox Nicene position and the Arian position, when those were still going on, when it came to the divinity of Jesus Christ and the Trinitarian view, those issues were still being debated about, and this issue arose as well. Apollinaris of Laodicea thought he could help affirm the Nicene position, so he was on the Orthodox side, and he thought, well, let me jump in here. I can, I can help with this problem. He attempted to do this by explaining how the Word of God could be incarnate in Jesus. And the way he did this was by claiming that in Jesus, the word of God, the second person of the Trinity, took the place of the rational soul. So all of a sudden, you're getting Greek philosophical stuff coming up in here. And that's not unusual because this is the side that he's taking and the side that he is on, really emphasizing the divine, the word of God being in the incarnate Jesus Christ. So further, he said, Jesus had a body as all other humans, but he did not have a human intellect. Uh, there should be some red flags jumping up here. What are, you, what are you talking about? The Word of God played the role that the intellect or rational soul plays in the rest of us. So, oh, again, this is sounding kind of weird. This is, what, what, what's going on? What's happening? Well, this position was acceptable to the Alexandrian point of view because they were mostly concerned about the divine, the Word of God being in Jesus. So they were all for it. Okay, great. This sounds good. But the Antiochians who were 
concerned about the humanity of Jesus said, oh, let's put the brakes on here. This doesn't sound right to us. Jesus must be truly human was the position of the Antiochians. Jesus took up humanity so that humankind could be saved. Only if he really became human did he really save us. So you can't take anything away from the humanity of Jesus Christ. And this was the position they held. If any part of what constitutes a human being was not taken up by him, that part was not saved by him. So I got a quote I want to read to you. This is from Gregory of Nazianzus. He's one of the guys we talked about early on in this study. He's one of the Cappadocian fathers. And this is the way he put it in dealing with this issue. If any believe in Jesus Christ as a human being without human reason, they are the one devoid of all reason and unworthy of salvation. For that which he has not taken up, he has not saved. He saved that which he joined to his divinity. If only half of Adam had fallen, then it would be possible for Christ to take up and save only half. But if the entire human nature fell, all of it must be united in the word in order to be saved as a whole. So this position was not acceptable and was argued against because of the fact that it was dividing Jesus Christ and the part of him was divine and part of him was human, but they were two distinct things. They weren't really in, in unity. So the Antiochians said that's a problem because if Jesus is not fully human, he's only part human, then he can only partially save human beings. So that, that had to be rejected. Well, there's another guy that came along, and this is Nestorius. Things went okay for Apollinaris. His position wasn't accepted, but it was okay. It was argued about, and uh, basically two sides couldn't come to agreement on it. Things for Nestorius didn't go as well. Nestorius was a representative of the Antiochian school who became Patriarch of Constantinople in AD 428. That title, Patriarch of Constantinople, was kind of a way of creating an equal position in the East of what the Pope was in the West. There's a lot of controversy around it, and it gets into some disputes that carry on that maybe we'll get back into a little bit later on in this study. But don't have a lot of time to talk about that today, but that's kind of, that's the title. Instead of just calling him the Bishop of Constantinople, he was called the Patriarch of Constantinople. Nestorius declared that Mary should not be called Bearer of God, that was the title that the church had for her, but should be called instead Bearer of Christ. So you may be thinking, well, this is a debate about Mary and her place. Well, it really wasn't. It wasn't about Mary. It was about Jesus. Nestorius was saying that in speaking of the incarnate Lord, one must distinguish between his humanity and his divinity. So Jesus being born into the world should be talked about differently when it comes to his humanity and when it comes to his divinity. Some of the things said about him apply to his humanity and some apply to his divinity. Okay, well, you can kind of go along with this a little bit so far. You know, what difference does it make if you call Mary the bearer of God, the bearer of Christ? Is there really a problem here? Well, it starts getting a little stickier. Nestorius declared that in Jesus there were two natures and two persons. Here's where we got a problem. There was one divine and one human. So there was a divine nature and person, and there was a human nature and person. Oh, that sounds complicated. What's that about? The human nature and person were born of Mary, but the divine were not. So now you've got two distinct things again, very distinct, and one is human, but the other is divine. And it's a confusing take, and you don't really find any strong proof of that in a biblical sense. 
Well, proponents of the Alexandrian position saw the danger in dividing the Savior into two beings where unity consisted in agreement, but not any real joining together. So basically what they're saying is Jesus, God divine, came into Jesus, the human being, and they coexisted, but they weren't the same. That is a big problem. Cyril, the bishop of Alexandria, gathered support against Nestorius from the emperors Valentinian III and Theodosius II, as well as support of the West. The West comes along, again, here they've got a part to play in this. They've got things settled on their side. They're not really having arguments. They come in and say, whoa, this is not, no way. This doesn't go along with what Tertullian said, and that's the position we're taking, and this guy Nestorius is, this is not good. So Cyril gets a group together to go after Nestorius. There was an ecumenical council that was gathered at Ephesus in June 431, and at that council, Nestorius was declared a heretic and deposed from his see. He spent the rest of his life in exile, eventually rejected by his Antiochian friends. So things didn't go real well for Nestorius, but actually there's a lot more that happened in this council than just that statement. So I want to read to you from, this is from the book, The History of Christianity, Volume 1, that has been a key part of the research for this study. And I want to read, this is a direct quote from the book, just so you can get an idea of some of the intrigue that happened as a result of all these events. Quote, Nestorius's main supporters, John of Antioch and his party, were delayed. This was talking about coming to the council. They were delayed and didn't make it on time to this council. After waiting for them for two weeks, the council convened in spite of the protests of the Roman legate and several dozen bishops. They then dealt with the case of Nestorius and, without allowing him to defend himself, declared him a heretic and deposed him from his see. John of Antioch and his party arrived a few days later, and they then convened a rival council, which was much smaller than Cyril's, and which declared that Cyril was a heretic and reinstated Nestorius. Oh, in retaliation, Cyril's council reaffirmed his condemnation of Nestorius and added to it the names of John of Antioch and all who had taken part in his council. Finally, Theodosius II intervened, arrested both Cyril and John, and declared that the actions of both councils were void, then followed a series of negotiations that led to a formula of union in which both Cyril and John agreed in 433, it was also decided the, the actions of Cyril's council against Nestorius would stand. So a big fat mess is what happened at this council. It wasn't fair. Nestorius wasn't represented. He didn't get to speak on his own behalf and was basically kicked out. Well, his supporters came along and said, oh, that's not going to work. And they had to say, well, we'll just have our own council and we'll do it our way. So they go and have the opposite deal. Nestorius is good to go. Cyril, you're kicked out. Well, Cyril then had another council of his own again, and they met and decided, well, wait a minute. What we did the first time was actually right. That second one was no good. We're going to re-kick out Nestorius. And not only that, we're going to add all the guys that are his supporters and kick them out as well. And then at that point, the emperor did need to step, step in. I guess this is one case where it actually was good that the state had a say. And Theodosius said, all right, guys, this ain't, this ain't happening. This ain't working. I'm going to put both of you in jail. So Cyril and John got arrested, and he declared that both actions of these councils were void. But they got together. They negotiated a statement that they could both agree on. And the one that didn't get the good end of this deal was Nestorius because they decided, okay, everything was void from before except 
that Nestorius needs to be kicked out. So he was, he was gone, and he actually spent the rest of his life in exile. And all the guys that used to be his friends, all his supporters, they didn't want anything to do with him by the end. In fact, they made him go even further out in exile later on. So not a great thing for Nestorius. He was branded a heretic, and his position was heretical, no question. But uh, he didn't get a lot of mercy. Well, that didn't end the dispute at all. It's still going on. So there were two other guys that come into play, Dioscorus and Eutyches. And we'll look at what they had to say now. The third round of Christological confrontations occurred when Dioscorus was made Patriarch of Alexandria in AD 444. Dioscorus was a convinced defender of the most extreme Alexandrian positions. So he's on the side of the extreme positions on the divinity of Christ being the thing emphasized even if you throw his humanity out altogether. The controversy centered on the teachings of Eutyches, a monk in Constantinople. He held that while the Savior was of one substance with the Father, he was not of one substance with us. So again, the position taken is an extreme one, de-emphasizing the humanity of Jesus in order to emphasize his divinity. He also said that Christ was from two natures before the union, but in one nature after the union. So that sounds confusing. What does that mean? Well, nobody really knew what it meant, but Patriarch Flavian of Constantinople, who was of the Antiochian tradition, he knew one thing. He didn't like Eutyches' teachings, and he decided they were too close to docetism and condemned him. Remember docetism. This was one of the very early on controversies and heresies in the church that was brought in by the Gnostics. Docetism taught that Jesus didn't even have a human body at all. He was just a divine creature that appeared to have a human body. And Flavian said, well, Eutyches, I'm sorry, we're not going back to this. The docetism was kicked out early on. So he condemned the teaching. Dioscorus maneuvered to have the affair grow into a conflict that involved the entire church. So he's going to push the issue. And therefore, a council was held by Emperor Theodosius II at Ephesus in 449. So here's this council at Ephesus, and it's being put together by the guys that are on the side of Eutyches, and that includes the emperor, actually. So Dioscorus was named president of the assembly by the emperor. The whole thing was set up so that they couldn't lose. He was given the authority to determine who would be allowed to speak. So that's pretty easy. If you want to convince everybody and you've got a control of exactly who gets to have a say, then you pretty much control what the opinion is going to be, the outcome, because you're only allowing people to speak that you want to hear from. The council took a strong Alexandrian stand. Not any shock there because it was set up to do that. Now, Pope Leo from the West had composed a letter on the subject at hand. He, he wanted it to be read there. He said a representative... But Dioscorus, knowing that the Pope wasn't going to be on his side, said, nope, not reading that. So it didn't get read. The doctrine that in Christ there were two natures was declared heretical, as were all who defended the Antiochian position. So they basically said, our position is the only way that's right. And you guys, if you don't agree with us, if you go along with the other way of putting an emphasis on the humanity of Jesus, then you're heretics. So this is an extreme position that now has taken power in the church. It was also declared that any who disagreed with the council could not be ordained. So you don't like what we have to say? Well, fine, we don't like you either. We're not, putting, we're not going to allow you to be ordained. You can just sit back and hush. So this was an extreme position set up 
with only one outcome that was going to happen as a result of this council and would have definitely been a huge issue for the church. Despite protests, which there were many, Emperor Theodosius II considered the matter ended. So that was going to be it. There wasn't going to be another council. There wasn't going to be any more dispute about this issue as far as the powers that be were concerned. Theodosius, the emperor, had said, I like this position. This is the one we're going to go with. If you don't like it, then you can go kick rocks. And that would have been the way it ended, except for a quirk of history. Suddenly, everything changed when Theodosius' horse stumbled and the emperor fell and broke his neck. So this little matter, this correction of incorrect teaching in the church hinged on the fact that this horse stumbled and the emperor was taken out of the picture so he couldn't stop a correction from happening. Now you can look at that as coincidence or you can look at that as divine intervention. But however you look at it, that's exactly what took place and it changed everything. And it led to the fourth ecumenical council that was gonna be held. Upon the emperor's death, his sister, Pulcheria, and her husband, Marcion, succeeded him. At the behest of Leo, the pope, she called for a new council at Chalcedon in AD 451. Pulcheria came in, and she didn't take the extreme view that Theodosius did. She makes the decision that we need to get this corrected. Some stuff that happened at that last council was not real cool. Didn't like the way it went down. Let's have another one. Let's get it fixed. And the Pope in the West, again, here they come with their influence, got her to call for a new council, and this one became the Fourth Ecumenical Council. It was at Chalcedon in 451. The council condemned Dioscorus and Eutyches and forgave all those condemned at the previous council at Ephesus. So it basically undid everything that had just happened a few years ago before. Leo's letter was read, the letter he originally sent, and it was a restatement of Tertullian's position that in Christ there are two natures in one person. The council produced a definition of faith which rejected the extremes of both the Alexandrians and the Antiochians. It reaffirmed what had been done at the previous great councils. So this was the fourth one. There had been three before this that were considered the great ecumenical councils. The first was Nicaea in 325, then the one in Constantinople in 381, and finally, the one we talked about already today, Ephesus in 431. So I want to read for you the quote of what this definition of faith said. So this is exactly what it said. Quote, following then the Holy Fathers, we all with one voice teach that it is to be confessed that our Lord Jesus Christ is one and the same God, perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, true God and true human, with a rational soul and a body, of one substance with the Father in his divinity, and of one substance with us in his humanity, in every way like us, with the only exception of sin, begotten of the Father before all time in his divinity, and also begotten in the latter days in his humanity of Mary the Virgin, bearer of God. This is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, manifested in two natures without any confusion, change, division, or separation. The union does not destroy the difference of the two natures, but on the contrary, the properties of each are kept, and both are joined in one person and hypostasis. They are not divided into two persons, but belong to the one only begotten Son, the Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. All this, as the prophets of old said of him, and as he himself has taught us, and as the creed of the fathers has passed on to us." 
So that was the definition of faith they came up with. There's some interesting things to consider about this. First of all, this definition did not seek to define in the sense of how it took place, but rather in the sense of setting limits beyond which error lies. So basically, they weren't going to be able to answer this question of how this took place. This is kind of what the problem all came about, was human beings trying to figure out how God did something that you can't really rationally understand. And so this definition wasn't going to try to take a side on that. It wasn't even going to try to explain how both sides could have a middle ground. It just set the parameters that you could look at and say, okay, within these parameters, we can have a discussion about this and that's okay. But if you go beyond these limits, then now you're in error. Now you're in heresy. And so this definition tried to kind of rein everybody in. Let's take these extreme positions and not take us out on either one of them, but bring them back towards the middle ground, which is really where it should be because Eastern teaching was done in pairs of truths that were seemingly contradictory and the truth was in the tension. So try to take an extreme side almost any of these issues. It's going to be, you're going to miss something because that's not the way the teaching was intended to be taken. This manner of speaking of Jesus is deeply influenced by extra biblical patterns of thought. What that means is what we just read, this definition of faith is not in scripture. This is extra biblical and is the result of human beings thinking about and trying to rationalize the things that are in the scripture. It's a way of trying to understand what the scripture says about things, even though it's not always clearly defined and it's certainly not always put down into one place. And that's really the way any kind of theology is going to go. There's going to be an element of human thinking, and that human thinking is not inspired. It is going to be influenced by things outside of Scripture, things that have been taught, a school that you come down on, a side of an argument that you take that you really like or don't like, and even misunderstandings of Scripture that come about just from the fact that we live on this side of eternity, and as Paul says, we see through a veil, so we don't see everything 100% clearly. We seek throughout our lives for a better understanding of Scripture and the things of God from the Holy Spirit in our lives, but we ultimately have to realize that we're not going to have it all 100% correct. I guarantee you that every single one of us, when we get to heaven one day, when we do finally gain that understanding that we presume that we'll have, there are going to be things that we were very sure we were right about that we're going to find out we were wrong. And there are going to be things that maybe we weren't real certain about that we found out, you know what, the even though I wasn't real certain about that position, that ended up being right. So we have to take that into account. We have to understand that there are limitations of understanding the things of God. It's not wrong to seek a better understanding. It's not wrong to try to set boundaries so that we don't get off into crazy stuff. That has to happen. But we also have to realize we can't be beholden to a school of thought that comes from human understanding so much so that we try to limit the scripture in a way that falls into that school, even if we have to jump through hoops to do it. That's a fallacy. That's a problem. And we all, in some ways, fall into that. And when it comes to that, that's all fine until it starts being a detriment to what the Word of God actually says. And the biggest problem with it is we don't really even realize when we've fallen into that trap. So this is the way things had to be, and it's the way things have to be. There has to be some understanding that we can all agree on. There has to be 
theology and doctrine because there are too many heretical positions that came into the church even very early in the life of the church. This had to be addressed early on. So it's what you might call a necessary evil and maybe put it in too dark a term, but we have to have it. It's not the best thing if we get too married to any of these concepts or especially where there's controversy and we take one position over another so strongly that it makes us even limit what God's actually saying about something. It, it's a problem that's been going on. It's not anything unusual. It's not going to probably ever end this side of eternity. We're never going to come to complete agreement. And so we better be able to say, you know what? We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't necessarily all agree on the same stances that we take. And when it comes to within the bounds of orthodoxy, that's okay. Now, if we get outside of those bounds, that's another matter. That has to be rejected. But when it comes within the bounds of orthodoxy, then we can agree to disagree on some things, and that's all right. And we don't have to hate each other for it, and we don't have to call each other names, and we don't have to think less of somebody just because they don't agree with our position. You can still think you're right. I can still think I'm right. But I can also be humble enough to say, I believe I'm right, but I'm not going to kill somebody else just because they disagree with me. Because it may turn out that when it's all said and done, they were right and I was wrong. And that's okay, too. I don't have a problem with being wrong because I am a flawed human being that is not perfect and does not have a clear understanding of the things of God. And I'm going to strive for my life to be to have better understandings. But I'm also going to admit that I'm never going to get there. So this is kind of where we leave things. The definition of faith soon became the standard of Christological orthodoxy in the entire Western church and in most of the East, but some of the East resisted. So this, as has been the pattern of kind of these councils in the East, this, the question is settled and yet it's not settled. There's still people that disagree. So next week, we're going to jump back into looking at the condition of the East in this early part of the Middle Ages, and we'll be focusing again on some of these theological controversies that spring up and how even this issue wasn't settled completely. So that's what we'll do next week. Thanks again for joining me today. Hope that you enjoyed this presentation about Eastern Christianity in the early Middle Ages. We'll continue that discussion next week. In the meantime, have a great week and God bless.